1991, two hikers, Italian Alps, stumbled across a 5,300-year-old corpse that they would later dub Otzi the Iceman. Preserved for more than 5,000 years, according to their calculations, in the ice and the dry mountain air, Otzi is the oldest intact corpse ever found. Kind of gross, I know, but going somewhere with this. They did investigations on the corpse and found that Otzi was most likely a shepherd. Uh, he was also a murder victim. He had been shot in the back with an arrow. And as a Bronze Age shepherd who became a murder victim, we might think of Otzi as the Abel of the Alps. In other words, the oldest human corpse ever found was not found in a peaceful grave with attendant signs of reverence and honor, but he was sprawled on a bleak mountainside with an arrow in his back. It's a distressing commentary on on um, human civilization, isn't it, even 5,300 years ago. It seems that human civilization is incapable of advancing without shooting people in the back. From the lonely death of Otzi in the mountain out to our day's killings, the number of Abels who lay slain by a cane are incalculable. The description our psalmist gives of the wrong with the world places the weight of responsibility for all the evil in the world on humanity. The psalmist takes his distress of a world that walks on top of human beings, especially voraciously uh, pronounced against God's children, to the one true answer. And in a world that is that spills the blood of the innocent, it's easy to despair. But the world, Abel, Otzi, and today's victims, that those victims were slain and Jesus came to rescue and save. And the distress that you may face at any level can be brought to the king who truly cares. Psalm chapter 5 is another morning psalm. You see that in verse 3, like Psalm 3. The following psalm, Psalm 6, is another evening psalm. All night long I flood my bed with weeping, Psalm 6, 6. And so therefore, in Psalms 3 to 6, you have prayers for morning and evening, morning and evening in those four chapters. It's another way of saying the way the, the, the psalms were arranged, that our entire day, from the rising to the setting of the sun should be praying without ceasing, should be prayerful. Spurgeon said prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. Devotion should be both the morning and the evening star. This Psalm chapter 5 is what is called prevailing prayer. Prevailing prayer is a prayer of desperation. We could say it is a, it is a holy demand of God that he do what he said he would do. It is grounded in what God has already said and revealed in his word. It's taking God at his word and holding him to what he said he delights in doing. It's what the old Puritans would call taking hold of God in prayer. David does this in our passage in four ways. He holds God to his promise in verses 1 through 3. He holds him to his person in verses 4 through 6. He holds him to his privilege in verses 7 and 8. And he holds him to his protection in verses 9 through 12. First, I'd like you to notice that he holds God to his promise in verse 1 through 3. David says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Literally in the Hebrew, my words, O Lord, listen, give ear to. 
Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Notice that he holds his God to his promise in verses 1 through 3. What promise? That his God listens. This is a man who's under distress. We're not told the history, the background of, of why uh, the David is under distress. This is a psalm that in the heading is written for the worship leader uh, there and accompanied by a, a, uh, a, a wind instrument, probably a flute. That's what the best scholars say. We don't really know. But he's under distress. He has faced great danger and the temptation in distress, if you would be honest with with yourselves, is that sometimes the only place we look at in our distress is at our distress, as though that were a solution in and of itself. And sometimes when we're in distress and, and we're, we're under pressure, the, the only thing we can think about, because we are, we are instinctively self-bent here because of our nature, we, we may obsessively look at our distress and our circumstances, and we might even be addicted to looking at the difficulties as our focus. And sometimes we can hardly hear or see anything else. But David here, by God's power, he says, turn your eyes up. Gaze upon the one who can bring resolution. There is no resolution outside of his care. So in your stress, in your distress, don't gaze at your navel and don't gaze at the situation here. Turn your eyes to the Lord. David says this over and over and over again. It's like the story of Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, who teaches something very important about prayer. You see, that Bartimaeus teaches us some of the, of the dynamics of what it really means to pray and bring our distresses to the Lord. Real prayer often begins with real desire, real desperation. We cry out to God and he may not seem to respond. Bartimaeus yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And it's like Jesus is, is intentionally walking by to test Bartimaeus' faith. And, G and, and Bartimaeus yells out and crowds try to quiet him because prayer isn't about being polite. Prayer is about a real need. God isn't looking for polite Nicely worded prayers and prayers. He is looking for persistent, prevailing prayers. He gives an illustration of this of the widow in Luke 18, the nagging that irritated the unrighteous judge in action. And that's the quality of persistence that God is encouraging. He, he's looking for those who cry to him day and night. And that's what is happening here with David in this situation. He is looking for desperate Bartimaeus who will insist on being heard, who will not take a non-response for an answer, who will always pray, Luke 18, 1 says, and not lose heart. Jesus says it's amazing to find such faith on this earth in Luke 18, 8. Jesus, when he responds to Bartimaeus, he asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? David here is specific. He's desperate. He's not vague. He's bold. He knows the son of David is near, his, his far-off descendant here, and he's not going to let him pass. He's going to say, hear me. 
God will open his eyes to some amazing glory. David cries out. He knows his Lord listens. He cries. He is persistent because God loves that kind of faith. And God promises to hear when we turn to him in brokenness and true dependence. You know, our distresses are, and all the distresses of this psalm here and our life situations are framed in Romans 8.28, aren't they? Sometimes we quote that verse and we kind of phrase it like this, that we know that all things will work together for good. And we forget that, and we just think that everything's going to turn out for the best. We think that everything's just going to work out. But the Bible doesn't say it's just going to work out. It's telling us that God will work things together for our good and his glory. And the very next verse, Romans 8, 29, tells us, gives us a step further to show us what that good is. And Romans 8, 29 tells us it is to conform us to the image of his son. When God works out things for good... It is not necessarily for our comfort. It is not necessarily for our earthly success. It is not necessarily for our ease, but it always is for his transformation, our transformation into Christ-likeness. If you think about it, brothers and sisters, when you leave this earth, transformation into Christ-likeness is the only thing that's going to last in you. Nothing that is unlike the sun of Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will be permitted in heaven. And everything that is like the Son will be permitted in heaven. That is God's passion for His children as He's united us in eternal relationship to His Son here. So as you're going through your distresses, as you're going through your difficulties, you need to think, what do I need to believe right now about God? I need to hold Him to His promise that He hears. Do I think my anger and my manipulation is going to fix my situation? What path am I going to take? Lord, lead me and direct it to the Lord. You don't need to put a stoic, stone face on when difficulties come and hide your emotions. No, you need to take your emotions to the Lord. You know, in New England and Maine, um, we pride ourselves on our rugged individualism. We think we can just kind of do things and, and make it through stuff, right? But did we forget that we're sheep? How many sheep do you know that have a posture of rugged individualism make it? No, we're going to take these things to the Lord because we need help. We need help. Uh, if, if you if if you watch uh, uh, some of the um, uh, fighting matches uh, that are that are available on TV, you know that when the man is pinned or when he's in a in a in a place where he is going to have his arm broken if he doesn't surrender. Or he is, he is at a place of, of submission. He's in a submissive posture. One of the things he must do is he must tap out. He must tap out. And that's what David is doing here. He's in a situation where he realizes, I, it is, it is beyond me. Uh, my, my posture needs to be a posture of submission. I am tapping out because he has a right view of God and he has a right view of mankind. And he has a right view of himself in light of his view of God. And so he is taking the circumstances. He's taking the things that stress him out. He's taking the things that bother him. He's taking his worries and anxieties. He's taking his pity parties. And he's taking them to the Lord. And he is asking the Lord to show me from his word in this situation what it means to obey Jesus so I can be like him. And I wonder if that's what we do. 
in our distresses, do we just build up those distresses with the things that we can control by our own emotions? Or do we take these things to the Lord and say, Lord, what are you trying to do to me from this? What are you trying to teach me from this? What are the commands of Jesus that you're trying to shake me into? What is the likeness of Christ that you're using this in my life to make me look like? So hold God to his promises. And then verses 4 through 6. Hold him to his person, his character, his nature, his never changing. And here the psalmist describes a God who is just, who is righteous, who is holy. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. There shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. That's the idea of, of lies and slander. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Hold him to his person. God is not inconsistent. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. And he delights in justice because he is set apart. He is holy. He is a just God. And he will make all things right. He starts out in justice. He will never cease to be holy. Or he will cease to be God. He is incompatible with evil. Where God is, evil cannot coexist. And that's why in verse 4 there, he says, The foolish shall not, uh, neither shall evil dwell with thee. That word dwell there is the idea of evil cannot even visit with you. And in a Middle Eastern culture where hospitality was a very important part of your life, someone says they needed a place to stay, you, 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 you couldn't say, well, we, didn't have, we don't have enough bedrooms. We don't have enough food. There was, there was an expectation in society and culture that you were going to give what you could to help this person stay there. The, 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 the word there of dwell is the idea here of, of visit in the most, in the, in the shortest visit possible here. It's a different word that means take up residence and dwell. It's a, it's a, it's, it's used to describe temporary, uh, tent camping here. And the point is this. That God is so incompatible with evil that even the most temporary coexistence of a sinful man with holy God is utterly impossible. Israel was marked out at a nation of many pagans who worshipped false gods. God, the one true God, Yahweh, was very distinct from the other gods. The gods in the Middle East that they worshipped. Uh, acted in anger, they would act in lust, they would act it for personal gain in the lives of these gods. They would carry grudges, they would seek vengeance, they would lie, they would deceive, they would manipulate, kind of like um, the, the, the Greek mythology. The distinction from humans and their false gods was that the gods were simply powerful and lived forever. Not Yahweh. Oh, he's powerful and lives forever, but the thing that marked his essential character was his holiness. He was good. He is incompatible with evil. And so that forms the base of the psalmist's confident belief that Yahweh is going to act to frustrate the opponents of the psalmist. With where he is, the arrogant can stand. He, he hates those involved with, with evil deeds in verse 5. It's long language. But he is not going to be part of anything that is not repentance. 
can see an illustration of this, the thief on the cross, the two thieves on the cross. There were two crucified on either side of Jesus. And one sees Jesus and he hears the others uh, mocking Jesus and blaspheming Jesus, including the other thief. And the one says, why are you doing this? This is innocent. And we deserve, we justly deserve what, what has happened to us. And he tells the Lord, Lord, remember me when you go into paradise. The other one blasphemes and mocks. And Jesus does not have one word to say on the cross to that other thief. There was not a, a, a humbling, a repentance of, of spirit here. And so the psalmist in verses 4 through 6 talks about what God will do because holiness to those who are, 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 are tearing down the reputation of the psalmist, to those who are bent on, on being people who shed blood. And he's really saying, God, you got reins here. You got the chains on these lions. There's a story in Pilgrim's Progress that as, as Pilgrim is, uh, or a Christian is headed toward the celestial city, the palace that stands a little off this road called the Holy Way. And there is this gatehouse there. And and Christian starts up the lane to the gatehouse, and he hasn't gone far, and he sees two lions right in front of him. And he stops, because he's not going to go up the path where these two lions can reach him. And he, and he starts to go back. And there's a porter at the lodge. And the porter at the lodge sees him and, and says this, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained, and are placed there for trial of faith where it is, and for discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come to thee. So Christian's nervous, and he's like, okay. And he makes sure he is right in the middle of the path, and he walks in the path there, and he's looking to, to walk exactly in the middle of the path, and the lions are straining at the chains, they're jumping at him, they're roaring at him, but they can't reach him in the middle of the path. And he passes through, and he claps his hands, he rejoices, and it's a picture here of what the psalmist is writing about in chapters, uh, verses 4 through 6. God's got the chains. He's in control. He cares. It's These situations, these distresses are not outside of his work. And so when you're overwhelmed by the temporary wickedness in this world and the injustice and you've been wrong, hold God to his person, to his nature, to his character. He is not a God who stands idly by. He is not passive about sin. He does not tolerate it. It is under his wrath and he will destroy it and plead his person as a just God. And thirdly, hold him to his privilege. Look in verse 7. Look at this privilege of welcoming. But as for me, I will come into thy house, the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. You see, there's a privilege that has been opened up to the psalmist. A welcoming of the set-apart God. That is not given on the basis of the psalmist, but notice what the verse says. It is given on the basis of God's unfailing love extended by his covenant. And so David can enter God's presence. He can worship in awe in his presence and he can find wisdom and leading. He says, but I by your great mercy, the multitude of thy mercy. You see, our God's holiness has two sides. 
For the wicked, there's judgment. For the repentant, though God's holiness is incompatible with evil, God's holiness is also, because he is good, it is consumed with extending his goodness and sharing his goodness toward his creation. Relentless goodness. God's intent from the beginning was to bless his creation. The very first words God says to humanity in Genesis 1, it says, and God blessed them. And then he gave them his commands. So judgment and mercy here are not two opposite competing uh, uh, characteristics of who God is, but they are consequences of his holiness and his love. Um, uh, he, his, his, his goodness here is the flip side of his incompatibility with evil. Because he is good, it is incompatible with evil. God is light and in him is no darkness at all, John says. And so God's holiness is a problem for mankind, isn't it? Because we're sinful. But God's holiness is also mankind's greatest hope because God shares his goodness in the person of Jesus Christ. You can think about it like this. Because our God can't wink at sin. He has a pure eyes to behold evil. Habakkuk 3 says. Sinful human beings find themselves under his judgment. But because God is holy and he is perfectly good, he has made a way through his mercy and his grace for human beings to find salvation and reconciliation and right relationship with God through Christ. He's provided a way. He did this through Israel and through Christ, where mankind can be restored to a right relationship with one another and with God in order to see his blessing. And so God's holiness in verses 4 through 6 here is not only the basis for his judgment on sin, but it's also the basis for his mercy and grace. Because he's good and he loves to share that. And he provides that. So the psalmist wants to, wants the readers to understand that the arrogant, the evildoers who align themselves with evil receive that one part of God's holiness is judgment on sin. But those who humble themselves and fear the Lord and receive his grace, but, uh, uh, who, who, who acknowledge the word uh, fear the Lord um, in verse uh, and verse 7, and in thy fear will I worship the Lord thy holy temple. That word fear is the Hebrew word that means this. To acknowledge absolute dependence for survival on the merciful holiness of God. And so the psalmist turns in humility to God's grace. And because of God's abundant mercy, the psalmist can enter the very presence of God in the temple. Well, Whereas before, in the previous verses, evildoers can't even hope to visit with God and their sin. And so the psalmist desires them to be led in ways that are, have been made straight by a merciful God, a way that walks properly because of his enemies. So he has to rely on God's grace. There's security there. There's security there in verses 7 and 8. This is important. Because the only way this relationship, this privilege, is extended is because the just one has stepped into history and he has become God with us. Jesus of Nazareth is fully God, became fully man, born in Bethlehem, lived a perfectly good life of obedience to God as he loved God with all his heart 
and he loved mankind perfectly, always doing good, then he willingly allowed himself to be the representative for our sin by dying unjustly as the innocent one on the cross of sin and guilt and shame. And he becomes the curse of sin for us on the cross, and he gives his life in my place as he sheds his blood as a sacrifice for my sin. And then out of the tomb, he's resurrected, and he walks out as a victorious one who's seen of many witnesses for 40 days, and who's ascended at the right hand of the throne of God to return and make all things right at his appointed time. He's the Messiah, who's the only one and the only way to be reconciled in a right relationship with God. And all who trust in him alone and take his life and let go of theirs, find their true life in him, that's never going to end. And so it's this unfailing love in verses 7 and 8 that David has experienced that's based on this fact as he looks ahead to the future Messiah that he can say, I can enter and gaze upon you. That is David holding God to the privilege that God has given him. Now, why does David hold on to this privilege? Because you'll find when everything else falls apart and everything's been stripped away and the onslaughts of the enemy and circumstances keep on coming, David can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David can say God's presence is enough. His grace is sufficient. His power is made known in weakness. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. So hold him to his privilege. And finally, hold him to his protection. Verses 9 through 12. He again describes the wickedness of the world and their foolishness and their rebellion against God and certain remnant of destruction and contrast the believer's protection. And you know, Paul will use these verses in Romans 3 to say, this is it, guys, we're all under this. This is this is the description of mankind. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he quotes these verses to prove that. In the last two verses of, or last two phrases of verse 9, just continue this unflattering portrait of the psalmist's enemies. He says, their inward part is every wickedness. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Their throat's an open grave, and, and those that they slander are brought to ruin and even death. Their tongue is, is very adept at, at taking a lie, a falsehood, a slander, and, 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 and smoothing out the rough edges so that people want to believe it. Spinning it. Interesting that these images here the slander. Um, and notice, he's talking about all these different enemies, but he's kind of referring to them as like one body. They're a united effort here. They have one mouth. They have one heart. They have one throat. They have one tongue here because they're a single entity. This is what evil is because they're sourced in their ruler, the prince of the power of the air. And then in verse 10, he says, let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Vex, let them return to be ashamed suddenly. He's desiring that their attacks or rebellious plans are going to turn back on them. They're going to, they're going to, with the, what they what they planted. Think of Haman and the book of Esther. He built these gall these these gallows for Mordecai, and God ends up using him in the irony of his plan and hanging Haman himself on them. That's what David's asking. But notice his protection in verse eleven and twelve in contrast. But 
Let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous with favor, what thou compass him as with a shield. Spread your protection over them. Cover over them. That idea of, 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 of covering or compassing around there is a word that's used in 1 Kings 8, 7 that describes the cherubim that were on the Ark of the Covenant who spread their wings to cover that precious Ark of the Covenant. It's a word that's used in Psalm 17, 8, to, where, where he asks God to hide the one seeking refuge in the shadow of your wings. In Psalm 91, he'll cover you with his feathers under his wings. Here. And here's the wonderful news. Because God has pledged his character... His name, He has pledged His promise, He has pledged His privilege to you in Jesus Christ, then you can hold Him to His protection. The results, the benefits of this. If you are in Christ by repentance and faith in His once for all finished work, the blood of Jesus has been washed over you. God sees you as perfectly righteous. And you're counted righteous for Christ's sake. His righteousness has been counted to you. Your sin was counted to Him at the cross. And you have taken refuge in him from your sin. And he has put a new song in your mouth. The death angel and evil has passed over you as, per, as, as you are protected. And you love king with joy. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in high places in Christ. And you are surrounded by his shield of love. And the shields would normally go in the front. They would protect you if you're facing the front. He says in verse 12, with favor, but they'll compass him as with a shield, and the idea is surround all around, cover over everywhere. So hold him to his promise because he hears. Hold him to his person because he is just. Hold him to his privilege because he welcomes. And hold him to his protection he keeps. Friend, if you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, the Bible says in John 3 that you remain under the wrath of God, the scripture says. You bring the, breathe the king's air. You enjoy his world. He's been kind to you in so many ways. You are in a very dangerous place. And the pride and wickedness of your heart will find yourself lacking in the coming day of judgment. And God's invitation to you is always to come and find shelter in Jesus Christ alone. Trust him alone and repent of your sin while it is still today. Because the day is coming when it will be too late. And the enemies of God will be ashamed. And you will break like a small boat upon the rock of his justice. And turn to Christ alone as your king and your rescuer. And trust his finished work for an eternal relationship with our good king. Be baptized as a marked follower of Jesus. That's what we'll celebrate next week. Invitation to those who don't know the king and are enemies of the king. At this point is repent and believe. When Martin Luther was making his way to Augsburg in Germany to appear before the Roman Catholic cardinal who would summon him to answer for what he said was his heretical opinions, one of the cardinal's servants taunted him and said, where are you going to find shelter if your patron, the elector of Saxony, should desert you? Because there were some political figures who did support Luther. Luther said, under the shelter of heaven. That was a psalmist shelter. It should be yours also. Let's pray.
As we pray, I'll have our deacons come up and we'll light our new members here with the right hand of fellowship. Welcome them to our congregation. Lord, we thank you for your word. That again is so clear as to what's been provided for us. Lord, I pray that if there are any here that are an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would find his terms of peace that come through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that you would use your word in the hearts and lives of believers, that you would build up your disciples, your church here this morning, and that your word would uh, transform and change lives, that the hunger for your word would have been filled, that you use it to shape us and to impact others with our life, to make more disciples, to share what we've learned and to share how the Lord is remaking us. As we head out now as a scattered church, on a mission that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.